The tariff war with Mexico could, in fact, be on, my friends. This is in addition to what Trump is trying with China. We'll talk about whether this is the right policy move. Could it help finally secure the border? Plus, Bernie Sanders says that the Soviet Union was bad. But is that kind of new for him? Because didn't he go there? We've got that. Plus, Biden's plagiarism and a whole lot more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. And we've been working with decades for Mexico to be equal partners to resolve this problem, and they've remained on the sidelines from day one. They only have about 150 miles of chunk, po- chunk point of the border that they need to enforce, and we have 2,000. We need Mexico to do, two, to do three things. We need them to do their interdiction along their border. We need them to attack and target the TCOs that are profiting from this, and we need them to be partners with respect to the asylum process. I think that this pressure is going to bring them to the table and get them closer to doing what they should be doing welcome to the buck sexton show everybody fight over the border is heating up that much is for sure at this point you have republicans who are getting a little bit uh a little antsy a little concerned about what the economic implications will be from this possible tariff uh, and tariff escalation that will come uh, it starts next week five percent on all goods from Mexico into this country, talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of goods overall, and that will only go up from there. Right? It'll be even more. This is a, a heck of a lot more. $350 billion a year of Mexican imports is what we're dealing with here. So 5% and then 10% and then 15%. It's a lot of money. Um, and this is in addition to what Trump has already taken on with tariffs against China to try to force China to the table on ending its unfair, predatory trading practices, intellectual property theft, all those other things. And I do believe the president has largely, on the substance, won that argument as to whether we should confront China. Before Trump came along, oh, no, we can't do that trade war. Oh, it's terrible. Now everyone says, well, hold on a second. What have the Chinese really been doing? And what does the future look like if we don't take a different posture when it comes to China. But now he's looking at Mexico and it's like, all right, maybe we'll do tariffs there too. I I do have a little bit of a concern that tariffs now are the hammer and that Trump sees everything because he's got that hammer as a nail. But maybe this does work. And it certainly would work better if Republicans didn't, at the first sign of any friction, of any political and economic cost, suggest this is now the Senate Republicans who... A lot of a lot of crony capitalist, quasi open borders, donor class Republicans in the Senate. That's that's where you find a lot of them. And they get very concerned about this and what it would mean, uh, what it would mean for their reelection prospects, I think. And also it would have a negative impact on some businesses and uh, there will be some economic pain that comes from this. I don't think there's any question about that. But there's an, there's another aspect of this that we, we have to think about, and that is what is acceptable right now, what is an acceptable future for us when it comes to the border? I mean, you had Mark Morgan there uh, to start off the, the segment here talking about how Mexico can do more than it is doing to help us out on this and should do more. He says there needs to be interdiction along the more interdiction along the border, attack the criminal organizations, and be partners in the asylum process. How many months now have I been saying to you that Mexico needs to become a safe third country? 
and we need an agreement with them to be a safe third country, meaning that anyone who wants to get asylum in this country would show up here, present themselves, but stay on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border and have their process adjudicated without them disappearing into the American interior, without the enormous magnet that exists right now for fraud, for law-breaking, and for making a mockery of our immigration process by either presenting oneself as a family unit when that's not the case or just knowing that as a family unit, if you come to the border, you're going to be released into the American interior and then there will be no real effort, no real accountability to uh, track you down afterwards. If this doesn't change, then our situation at the border will not change. It will only continue at 100,000 plus a month coming into this country. Um, And we will not have a border that anybody could seriously consider secure. Uh, It's not secure right now. It's the worst that it has been in a a very long time. Completely overwhelmed is what you're hearing. I mean, that's the description from the Border Patrol. It has been for, for, for weeks. Arrests have surged to a seven year high. Um, while these talks with Mexico are going on. I'm sorry, but I, I have I have a tough time believing that we could be at a point where we're setting records right now after all the attention this issue has gotten. And, oh my gosh, more than 144,200 migrants, according to the New York Times, here were taken into custody by Customs and Border Protection along the southwestern border in May. That is a 32% increase, the highest monthly total in seven years. Most cross the border illegally. 10% arrive without the proper documents at ports of entry. So they are cro- they, they, these are all illegal crossings, 144,000 illegal crossings uh, that resulted in people being taken into custody. I'm sorry, almost all of them were illegal crossings. Uh, And then you had about one in 10 are in custody because they don't have the right documents when they showed up at a port of entry. So this problem is even worse than worse than people who have been trying to get the alarm uh, alarm bells rung. Realize 144,000. We're going to be we're going to be over well over a million for the year if this keeps up. 144,000 people showing up, not going through the normal. And keep in mind, we already have, through the legal immigration process, a million people a year who are going to be brought into the American family personally. We have a million people a year who will be staying in this country forever. And that's legal and that's fine, but I'm just saying, you know, there's there's a lot that our immigration system is already handling and dealing with that you're going to add on to it now almost 150,000 people illegally crossing a month is just indicative of how completely out of control the situation is. Who can afford who can better afford in this trade dispute now that Trump is or this this fight over a possible tariff implementation? Who can better afford this price tag? Us or them? We have been led to believe, I think, and this is from the go along to get along swamp culture in DC. We we're led to believe that when it comes to foreign relations, America should never, it's bullying if we use leverage against a country that's not an oppositional country, or that's not North Korea or Russia or something, but, you know, any other country we deal with, especially a neighbor like Mexico. It's bullying if we say, we're going to need you to do this or else. 
to this I say this is negotiation. In any negotiation, there, there are good things you can offer and there are things you can offer that aren't so good. You could say you do this or I'll do that or you do this or I'll do this other thing that you don't want me to do. That's how this goes. We've been asking the Mexican government for a long time to help us more on this problem. We've been trying to get them to be more constructive partners, but they don't want to do that. Maybe they don't want to spend the resources. Maybe they don't want to handle this. But the Mexican government can do a whole lot more. And we know this. Lindsey Graham, I think, is is a spot on here when he says that they should become a third safe country. We should have that agreement in place. And the other things that we see going on with the buses and everything else, that all has to stop. Play clip nine. Ask Mexico to do two or three things that they're not doing that would matter. Help us make sure you apply for asylum in Mexico or Central America, not the United States. Stop giving them buses to get to our border. A few things you could do would help the problem. And if they'll do those few things, we won't do tariffs. But if they refuse to help us, what options do we have? Refuse to help us, what options do we have? There are things on the books, I'll have you know, if you you really want to go deep in the weeds on immigration, there are things like any country that does not take back those that we are trying to deport, we can suspend all visas. This is currently on the books for immigration law. We can suspend all visas from that country. I'm sure if the Trump administration did that with any of these Central American states, we'd be told that it's horrible. And Look what they said when we cut off aid. We're not allowed to invoke, and this is, this is the liberal mentality on the immigration crisis. We are not allowed to invoke consequences. We're not allowed to cause consequences for anyone in this process. We cannot punish people that cross illegally. We cannot punish states that will not stop those from crossing illegally, Mexico. We cannot punish Central American countries that are allowing this outflow from their own territory into Mexico. It's no one's fault. No one is allowed to suffer anything uh, as a result, suffer any consequences because of this. And if we, as a sovereign nation, try to reestablish our sovereignty in some meaningful sense, if we try to take any action that would deal with the now going on 150,000 a month illegally crossing into the country, we're bad. We're the we're the bad guys here. Uh, They're saying that, oh, Trump, this tariff, uh, this tariff issue is just showing how you know, how he doesn't really understand the economics. of No, I think he does understand the economics involved. What does it cost the country right now to have this problem of illegal immigration? What is the cost in, in health care and in schools in the processing of all these people by the federal government? The court time, the, the, the lawyers that will be appointed You know, Washington Post, big, biggest story on the Washington Post front page is HHS canceling English classes and legal aid for unaccompanied child migrants in shelters. Let's understand what's happening here. Every unaccompanied migrant child that is currently in federal government custody was sent by adults who know that they are exploiting the system. So this is a direct response to what we have going right now, which is trying to do everything we can to make them as comfortable as possible and and you know, to, to release them to a sponsor family somewhere in the United States. But th- this is not this is not what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to take your kid from some other country, send them to the U.S. border and say, OK, you take care of them now 
until we can find somewhere else for that person to go. There are budgetary constraints, and the budgetary constraints now are affecting some soccer programs that they've set up for for unaccompanied migrants, for schooling programs. Look, I don't blame these kids. It's not about punishing the kids, but Congress needs to do more here to stop this from happening. The answer can't be, yeah, we are running a, a giant Uh, education and entertainment facility for anyone who wants to send their child to America not through the legitimate process and to put them in the hands of coyotes to put them in positions where they are enriching the cartels and then again no one suffers any consequences if you were a Central American who wanted to come to America right now why not do it nothing bad is going to I mean nothing bad to you is going to happen to you from the American government bad things can happen because of the coyotes and the transfer across cartel-controlled territory. Are we allowed to do anything to get Mexico to comply? Are we allowed to do anything to get some of these other countries that are taking money from us? That's right, taxpayers, sending them checks. I see here Guatemala says it's working with the U.S. to tighten its borders and try to break up these caravans. Well, it's about it's about time. It's about time. And, and it maybe is only happening because they see that if we're willing to take steps against Mexico that will have some economic consequences and political pain in this country too. Tariffs are not going to be pain-free. But if we're willing to do that, then maybe we're going to do more about the Central American countries where a lot of these migrants are coming from. But this is this is a major issue. we got more on this team and uh, a whole lot more show to talk about, so stay with me. The news came that the president had this notion that he was going to treat Mexico as a, an enemy. This is dangerous territory. This is not a way to treat a friend. It's not a way to deal with immigration. It's not a way to deal, uh, meet the humanitarian needs at the border. Okay, Nancy Pelosi, econ and trade expert Nancy Pelosi, tonight at 11. Uh, what is the way to deal with Mexico on this? What is the way to deal with the humanitarian crisis at the border? It's also an illegal immigration crisis. Notice uh, the, the Democrats always trying to control the language, always trying to control the way that we talk about this what do they present oh that's right it's just humanitarian because then if you don't fund you know english as a second language classes for the migrant children if you're not putting them in school uh giving them taxpayer funded health care and and you know recreational programs and movie showings and all these things you're a terrible person meanwhile we are this is a scam we are being scammed it is happening every day, and it's happening now to the t- to the tune of almost 150,000 a month. I just saw that number today. It's astonishing. And Pelosi says that we're treating Mexico like an enemy. Why? Does Canada is Canada treating us like an enemy because there are some tariffs on the import of, of U.S. goods into Canada so they can protect some of their own industries? Is the EU treating us like an enemy because they have tariffs in place to protect some of their industries that they think are particularly necessary or sensitive for their own reasons? I would just I would like to know where the lines are drawn here to call, to call it treating uh, Mexico like an enemy. Look, I understand there's a difference and there should be a difference in how we approach dealing with China and how we approach dealing with Mexico on trade, but. This isn't really that hard, is it? Are are we asking for anything from the Mexican government that is impossible? Are we saying, well, if you don't stop all the flow of drugs into this country, which are now killing tens of thousands of Americans a year, but look, that's hard. That's hard. You know, the cartels 
are not complying with the Mexican government. By their very definition, they're breaking the law. They're going around. Well, there's, I'm sure, plenty of collusion with Mexican authorities, but that's another issue. What we're saying is, hey, when you have a, a, a crowd of a thousand Hondurans or Guatemalans who are all marching together across the country, can you not provide them with food and shelter and buses and take them right to the border and then just say, well, this is your problem, America? Can you offer them safe haven in your country and play ball this a little bit more so that they're not walking into our country? That does, does that seem unreasonable? Is that, is that an enemy state request? I can assure you that if we had 150,000 or so illegal crossings at our northern border with Canada, we would have some tough words for our Canadian brothers and sisters. You know, we would have to say, hey, can you guys get a handle on things? If you can't, we're going to have to, you know, there's going to have to be some consequences here. But, you know, but Pelosi, all the Democrats do on this issue is complain about Trump. They never have anything to offer that is constructive they just want to sit back and use this as a means of bashing the administration calling them racist calling them xenophobic and doing everything in their power in the meantime to obstruct any meaningful change about the current situation of the border which is it is worse than it has been in the last 20 years right now president trump who beat the republican field largely by talking tough on immigration and making some big promises, the immigration situation at our border is worse than it has been in 20 years. What is Trump supposed to ignore this? You know, tariffs. One reason he's gone for tariffs is because it's an area where at least the Democrats, you don't think a, a some judge from the Ninth Circuit is going to come along and say, oh, the president can't institute tariffs. Well, maybe a judge will. Just give it time. We'll be back. We have a border situation in the United States and you have one over here. But I hear it's going to work out very well. I think it's supposed to work out well. It's going to work out very well here. And uh, again, uh, both the military and the trade is such a big factor, and we're going to be discussing that very much. So it's an honor to be in Ireland with my friend, and he's doing a great job as your prime minister. The main thing you want to avoid, of course, is, is going to avoid our wall between. No, I think you do. I think so. you do. The way it works now is good. You want to try and keep it that yeah. way, and. I know that's a big point of contention with respect to Brexit is your border. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to work out well. <laughs> that was an interesting exchange. That was uh, Trump there talking to Leo Varadkar, who is the uh, the prime minister of Ireland. Um, so, oh, sorry, president. Uh, wait, is it president or prime minister of Ireland? I got to make sure I get this get this right. It doesn't really. I'll figure it out in the meantime. Um, but talking about the border wall, uh, you have sure enough the uh, the the Irish premier. That's a good way to do one. Uh, you have the Irish premier who's not liking the idea of a uh, <laughs> of a wall between uh, Britain and, and or between England and Ireland over over this whole Brexit issue. Uh, so he, here's I, I just thought that was kind of a funny exchange. Also, strange that you you wouldn't think that uh, he's the PM. Thank you, producer Mike. That's what I thought. Just making sure it's tough to keep it all straight with all these European places. Uh, got you know you get the president of France, Macron, Monsieur Macron, and then you got the PM in the UK, the PM in Ireland. Uh, but no, they they don't want walls there. Ireland, you know, I've never been. 
which is interesting because it's kind of the mother country for me in a sense. I think I'm about half Irish. And I've never been to, so I gotta get, I gotta work on that. I've been to China, I've been to Afghanistan, I've never been to Ireland, so I don't know how that's happened. Um, but my friends who have spent a lot of time there tell me that it is shockingly left wing in its politics. Uh, that it is even, even for a European country, people have told me. I, I remember hearing a friend of mine who did a, who studied in Ireland for years. He said that Ireland is the Cuba of Europe. <laughs> I said, "Whoa, that is rough stuff." Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I wouldn't think of Leo Varadkar as a particularly Irish name, but obviously they've had a lot of uh, immigration and folks in different backgrounds going to Ireland. All right, let's move on. I, I, the, the border situation with the tariffs, let's see if it gets moving from Mexico. If you're asking me for a prediction right now, I would think uh, I would think that the likeliest situation is that Mexico's going to try to, they don't want this to go into effect. We don't want this to go into effect. So good chance in my mind that what happens here is the Mexican government says, okay, okay, we'll do some stuff. And it gives the Trump administration the cover to say, all right, since you're going to work with us, we're going to, we're going to put this on hold. And wouldn't that be, let's just establish this now so that when the media is trying to tell you that Trump is terrible and he's so bad and doesn't know anything and he's orange and his hair is weird. uh, Let's remember that if that happens, if Mexico promises and takes some additional steps as a result of this it's a threat i mean it's an economic threat but this threat of an implementation of a five percent tariff wouldn't that be trump making a deal wouldn't that be successful negotiation from the negotiator in chief here i think the answer has to be yes right i think we have to see this as a win for trump so i i say this now maybe it doesn't happen maybe the five percent tariff goes into effect I say this now because Trump, you know, will get no credit from the media whatsoever. Even if Mexico blinks, Mexico backs down and says, you know what, we'll we'll play ball on this. We'll stop some of this uh, inflow into your country of of illegals. Uh, Keep in mind, you know, Mexico has sovereignty too. Mexican government, Mexican authorities can do things about people entering their country from another country. You know, if if you just walked into Mexico without permission, guess what? They would have a problem with that. But no surprise, they haven't taken a whole lot of action so far to help us in this process. But if, if Trump gets action out of them, just remember, it's a win. And very few media outlets will tell you that because they're also invested in the destruction of this president. Speaking of the destruction of this president, you see what I did there? That's, that's what we call a smooth smooth turn by a smooth operator it's a smooth transition Uh, you have the constant talk now of impeachment from the media thanks Mueller we all know what Mueller's press conference was really about it was to light the fuse or relight the fuse on impeachment proceedings against the president Uh, you still haven't had anybody really define whether Mueller decide whether Mueller is going to be giving open testimony, which he absolutely must do. I I do not understand how anyone doesn't see this as as a necessary... uh, You can't let him walk out, just have his say, and then just bounce. Here's the truth. If the Democrats thought that Mueller would provide them, and you know this, Mueller would provide them with a massive bash Trump extravaganza opportunity, and there wasn't a risk to them of it majorly backfiring... We would have already had Mueller 
down on Capitol Hill. Oh, they would have pushed for it right away at the House. The committees, the media would have been a whole circus. But there are questions that Mueller needs to be asked. There are questions that Christopher Steele is apparently going to be asked, but we'll see if that how that happens and when that happens. But for Mueller, I would like to know at what point did you find out that the operation against uh, against the Trump campaign was that one that the Trump campaign didn't collude with Russia. You start with that. When did you know that? And why did you continue with this massive grinding investigation even after it was clear there was no collusion? We know the answer to it, but I want to get him on the record as to why he continued with this. I also want him to explain how it is that the official record of the origins of the Russia collusion investigation indicate that this was all because of Papadopoulos and what he said in a bar. And that's just laughable. And in fact, in the Mueller report, I believe it gets wrong that Mifsud reached out to, they think that Papadopoulos reached out to Mifsud, but Mifsud reached out to Papadopoulos first, which makes this much more likely to be a dangle, which would change the way that it should have been treated by law enforcement if they put somebody near the campaign and planted the idea of Hillary's emails getting uh, hacked by the Russians in the first place then that's entrapment. They're trying to avoid this, but what we're going to find out is that there was entrapment. But we we can't, unfortunately, until we have the IG report, we're limited in, in how much we can fight back on some of this. And in the meantime, the Democrats are running around with this impeachment narrative. But first of all, the media, they're, they're in a frenzy. And, and why are they in a frenzy over this? Well, they're in a frenzy because their credibility, such as it is, has taken a hit. I don't mean their credibility about their reporting so much, because that was already, you and I both know that a lot of these networks are anti-Trump. They're they're full of people who are perpetrators of, of a fake news narrative against Trump. Don't ever forget that it was the media that first used the term fake news to describe how gullible Republicans and Trump supporters were with the stuff that was on Facebook and and Trump managed to turn that around to say, yeah, you think that we're gullible? You think that our side traffics in falsehood? Your side traffics in falsehood all the time and pats themselves in the back for it. Your side traffics in propaganda and misdirection and thinks that they are doing a great service for the country. They're not even good faith errors. They're bad faith errors. And, and you you embrace this part of, you know, the journos embrace this part of themselves. But the problem that the media has to deal with now, the anti-Trump media, which is just in, we always go back and forth on this, are the, is the media an appendage of the Democratic Party? Or is the Democratic Party an appendage of the media? I think you make the case either way. But they promised, I mean, you look at someone like Rachel Maddow, her show on MSNBC night after night, the promise of that was, and so many people built their careers in the last two years on the left around there's going to be a, a moment of, aha, this Trump presidency is over. They're going to get him. If they had to lie to get there, that was always okay. The people that watch CNN and MSNBC, they're not upset if there are fake news stories used to hurt the president. That's, that's all part of the effort. In fact, I think they'd be upset if they found out that CNN and MSNBC and and the Washington Post and other places were unwilling to bend or even break their standards entirely in order to take down this president. After all, they think he's a threat to our democracy. 
They think he's a threat to our institutions, clear and present danger to America. Shouldn't they be willing to color outside the lines a little bit to get this guy? I don't think that the CNN audiences in particular, having spent a lot of time over there and having some contact with members of that audience through the digital world, they're crazy. I don't think that they have a problem at all with the fact that CNN has had to fire people for fake stories, that they've run that they've run with things that were big-time fake news. They've gotten things wrong, like the date of the uh, communications around the around Donald Trump Jr. and the Trump Tower meeting. There's all kinds of things that they just get wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. Wrong as long as it hurts Trump is fine. But wrong and then not giving the goods to the audience, meaning the end of the Trump presidency, that's what's so unacceptable to them. They've been promising, promising their audience that this was all, this get Trump effort was going to be Watergate 2.0 and would result in the destruction of this presidency in one way or another. And nothing short of that is going to be acceptable to them, which is why the media is all on board. They're all on board for impeachment. They totally believe in it. Um, play clip three. I'm sorry, no, play clip four, rather. This is the media telling you how much there needs to be impeachment. Play clip four. Mounting pressure, growing calls to start impeachment after Robert Mueller breaks his two-year silence. If the House leadership doesn't start hearings now, I believe it's hard to see them ever doing it in the months ahead. Again, now or never. We seem to be moving toward a place where impeachment may be inevitable. The dam really seems to be breaking wide open. What he was really saying is Congress has a job to do. It was almost a jeopardy question, the way Robert Mueller put it yesterday. There is a process other than the criminal justice system to charge a sitting president. What's the answer? The answer is impeachment. The answer is impeachment. I do believe that, the, that in a sense, the, the Democrat-aligned media might be giving the Democrat Party some bad advice here because they're thinking short-term, and in the short-term, they just want to have coverage of impeachment proceedings, and they feel like if this moves to impeachment, no matter what the outcome, the media will have been justified in what they've done in the eyes of their audience and their supporters and subscribers and since Trump came into office. Then they then they don't look like they were just a bunch of clowns who overpromised, underdelivered, and completely debased themselves and their profession, the profession of journalism in the process. They'll say, oh, well, Trump was impeached. So we were, even if Russia collusion was a farce, we were right all along, see, because he got impeached. It covers their it covers their backs, so to speak. It gives them some professional credibility and some some degree of relevancy once again which right now a lot of them feel like they're scrambling what have they been doing what what was this all about if not to lead to impeachment now pelosi and the democrats they got to think uh okay but what does this really mean how would this really shake out we'll, we'll address that part of it right after the break i travel all the time in the country do you know most people think that impeachment means you're out of office did you ever get that feeling, or you're just in the bubble here? They think that you get impeached, you're gone. And that is completely not true. And I may have thought that myself 50 years ago. But you get impeached, and it's an indictment. It's an indictment. So when you're impeaching somebody, you want to make sure you have the strongest possible indictment. 
because it's not the means to the end that people think. All you do, vote to impeach, bye-bye birdie. It isn't that. She's right, it isn't that. First of all, I am a little surprised. I feel like uh, wildly ignorant anti-Trump lunatics are Pelosi's base. So now all of a sudden their ignorance is a problem for her. That's just a surprise to me, but she seems a little bit bit upset by that. Uh, But notice how she says it's all about having the best case possible. Okay, the best case possible. Why, Speaker Pelosi? If it's not a means, it's not a means to an end, she seems to suggest, unless you have a really strong case. Okay, and if she has that really strong case, which some Democrats say they already do, and Pelosi, I'm sure tomorrow will say, well, our case is really strong, but we still have to wait to see if we can make it stronger. It's the strongest case ever, but let's let's drag this process out and drag our feet on a little more to see if it could be the even stronger, strongest case ever. I mean, it's just, this is babble. It's babble. Babbling from Pelosi. It's not a surprise. But also, there's not going to be removal of the president from office. That's not going to happen. That's not a part of this, right? We all know that the Republicans in the Senate are not going to go along. They're not going to have a two-thirds majority. You're not going to have a... I don't believe you'd have... Well, I hope you wouldn't have a single Republican senator uh, vote for removal from office. It'll be a straight party-line vote from the Democrats. So there is no means to an end here, no matter what. The whole purpose of impeachment and the reason Democrats are talking about it so much is because of the optics. It's because of the narrative going into the re-election. So who doesn't really understand what's happening here? Pelosi or the people that she seems to think are too dumb to understand what's happening? They want the president impeached so that they can say the president was impeached. Impeached is bad. Impeached is... A, a mark of disapproval, but it's, it's a political process. It's a political check on the president. But a purely partisan impeachment that does not result in removal from office, the Democrats could get that anytime they want. They could just do it. Any majority could impeach any president if they really chose to do it. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have meaning beyond that. So there will never be a means to an end. The president is, I don't think, anybody believes realistically going to be moved uh, removed from office by the Senate a two-thirds majority never mind the fact that the Republicans thankfully have have a narrow Senate majority right now so what is all this about it's just power politics playing out in front of us all it's the insanity of the Democratic Party inflicting itself on the nation once again trying to flail about for some way of evening the odds because they have to, the more savvy ones, and Pelosi has her savvier moments, the more savvy Democrat operators here have to know that none of these candidates right now that they're putting up have a, have a prayer of defeating Donald Trump unless they can try to stack the deck for their side. And maybe they think impeachment is just that. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make, Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Another battle in the free speech wars unfolding today. This one involving uh, Mr. Steven Crowder, who uh, I've done his show a couple times in the past. 
Stephen is a uh, conservative. Has built a very uh, large following on on YouTube. He's one of the kind of early. I think I I can't think of many conservatives who became YouTubers earlier than Stephen. He got into that game early on and has uh, rightly benefited from that foresight. I know Stephen's content a bit. I've been a guest on his show. I can't say that I know all of his content, all the things that he said. I mean, that would be crazy, right? He's done probably thousands of shows over the years. Um, But YouTube is a major platform for him. And guess what? Social justice warriors want him gone. They want him off, deplatformed, speech equals violence. Oh, my gosh. Steven Crowder is so scary. We have to get him kicked off the platform. That's where we are right now. And there there had been uh, rumblings for the last, uh, I'd say the last couple of days of how they there was a, a, a review going on of Crowder a review going on of whether YouTube would kick him off entirely. And uh, initially, and and this was started also because of a, I'm trying to remember this guy's name. He's from Vox, which is really the most uh, left-wing, smarmy, whiny, beta male organization in media that I'm aware of. I mean, just very... A lot of sort of pajama boy style, you know, eh, just whiny nonsense from Vox. And they're among, Vox is almost like parody. You read it and you think, that really can't be the article, is it? I mean, I, I can't do a good job right now off the top of my head of coming up with some of the things that Vox will write. But, you know, do do Disney cartoons all perpetuate the white patriarchy in society? You know, they'll, they'll write things like that all the time. I mean, they think that's really helpful for society. To, you know, they're also a big big proponents at Vox of there's no such thing as a non-political or non-politicized space. And so they, they take it upon themselves to pollute everything with their far-left politics. You know, Ezra Klein was, I think, a senior person over at Vox, for example, and he's uh, he's someone who, if you really want to take the measure of him, just listen to the debate that he had with Sam Harris some time ago on Sam Harris's podcast, where you just uh, picked up that Klein was a, a a very smarmy, self-righteous, and intellectually dishonest individual. That was what I took from listening to Sam Harris and Ezra Klein go back and forth on the... This was maybe a, at least a year ago now, I think. But YouTube was looking at, at Steven Crowder because... Uh, of a Vox, I believe Carlos Maza, who works at Vox, who has tweeted out things like, since I started working at Vox, Stephen Crowder has been making video after video debunking strike through. Every single video has included repeated overt attacks on my sexual orientation and ethnicity. And so he had, he's complaining, essentially saying that, that Crowder this Vox writer says that Crowder is and is being anti-Hispanic and anti-gay in in making fun of Carlos Maza, whom I had never heard about until this controversy. Um, but I feel like I probably could guess a lot of his political leanings and all. I mean, he works for Vox. I mean, he's basically a commie. I mean, if you work for Vox, you're you're to the left of Bernie Sanders, if that's even possible. If there's any room on the spectrum to the left of Bernie Sanders, if you work at Vox, you're pretty much there. So they went after Crowder, and Crowder is, look, he's a, uh, you know, I give, uh, Stephen's always been uh, very, very nice to me when I've done a show. I give him credit for being a conservative pioneer on, on YouTube, somebody who was early among, on the right to use YouTube as a platform. 
and they want to make he's a great person for the left to try to make an example of because if enough conservatives grow large followings on YouTube, well, then it becomes a place where we have real clout and where we can go. And it's an alternative to the uh, current balkanization that's happening in the digital space on, uh, you know, with, with some of these other channels that are out there that, well, is this, you know, is this going to work? Is this going to be a real going concern for conservatives uh, stretching for a while or is it going to fold? Anyway, they they put this out there for Crowder that they were looking at his stuff and YouTube came back and said, I'm trying to find the actual statement here. Um, after Maza's complaint, here we go. Here you go. YouTube yesterday said, quote, our team spent the last few days conducting an in-depth review of the videos flagged to us. And while we found foul language that was clearly hurtful, oh no, the videos as posted don't violate our policies. As an open platform, it's crucial for us to allow everyone, from creators to journalists to late-night TV hosts, to express their opinions within the scope of our policies. Opinions can be deeply offensive, but if they don't violate our policies, they'll remain on our site. End quote. Now, I this is this is really, I think, if if they're being honest about this, this would be if applied in good faith, that there are rules, and if you don't violate the rules, you stay on the platform, even if it makes people sad on on the inside, even if it gives them hurt feelings, lots of tears, if you don't break clearly defined, universally applicable rules on the platform, you don't get kicked off the platform. That's from the perspective of what we could hope for with Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram, any of these things, Google, which owns YouTube, or Alphabet is the parent company which owns Google, which owns YouTube. Uh, that's the best that we can hope for. But continued pressure from Vox and other sites, and you know, the left has a, uh, a much bigger megaphone to the heads of Silicon Valley than we do on the right. They, they did not let up the pressure after this, and they took action against Crowder. Anyway, oh, okay, so what do they do? They didn't kick him off the platform entirely, but they demonetized him. Uh, they demonetized him. So now, okay, you can still be on YouTube, but you just can't use YouTube in a professional capacity to make money. Um, you, you, you can't use this as something that you can partner with YouTube as a content creator for monetization. And here's what YouTube said about this. Update on our continued review. We have suspended this channel's monetization. Speaking of Crowder's channel, we came to this decision because a pattern of egregious actions has harmed the broader community and is against our YouTube partner program policies. What the heck does that mean? Harmed the broader community. Is that code for things libs don't like? things the the vox commies get upset get a little sad about i i couldn't even tell you harm the broader community how is it a violation of the rules or not ah you see what happened here was you had a high profile test of whether or not youtube engages in anti-conservative viewpoint discrimination Right. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. Or I, I'm I'm passing no judgment on the specifics of what, I, first of all, I haven't seen or heard what Crowder said. I've seen a couple of pull quotes on it. But, you know, I, I don't know if some of the stuff he said, if, if I 
I'm not passing judgment on one way or the other. But YouTube decided when they looked at this that it did not violate any of their rules. And that was their judgment. Now, a day passes. There's media attention on this. Clearly, the social justice left is up in arms about this decision. And so they come up with the, well, we'll go with the kind of halfway. We'll split the baby, so to speak, here. We will tell Crowder that he can stay on the platform, but he has been, he has been demonetized. So that is taking sanction against him. That is punishing him for speech that the left does not like. Now, conservatives are all fired up about this, as we should be. Just as when friends of mine like Raheem Kassam and Jesse Kelly and others have been summarily suspended from Twitter for things that, to me, are it's a judgment call to begin with, but an incredibly poor judgment call based on the kind of things they've been suspended from in the past. We conservatives rally together, but this is going to continue on. And I, I can't say that I really, I really feel like we have an answer here. This does remind me a little bit of the the debate that has been roiling uh, conservatism and the right for the last week or so about Frenchism and I guess Sarab Amariism. I don't know what we really you know Frenchism pro or con. Um, or you know, for or against, and that, and, and by the way, I, and I'm not, pre- <laughs> I don't want to try to d- dig too deep into that one right now because I'm not going to represent to David's satisfaction his point of view from David French from National Review accurately, and I certainly wouldn't be able to represent uh, Sarab Amari's point of view on this. But in in very basic summary, it's you know, do you do you have to do what you have to do to win? If you really believe in, in if you really believe that there are things that are important in conservatism that must be implemented and not just wait around and hope that one day the other side comes to their senses, or do you try to be nice and stay within the already agreed power frameworks and see if you can just sort of make incremental progress toward conservative ends? What do we do with these social media platforms? Do we just keep pushing back and saying, all right, we know that what you're doing, and this is, the, this is the future of communication, my friends. This is the battle that conservatives have been waging a battle against the mainstream media since, well, at least the 80s with Reagan. But really, you know, thanks to Rush and, and some of the other big voices out there who, who gave a voice to half of the country. And then the rise of Fox News starting in 1996, the Drudge Report. Uh, which has been a mainstay of my internet reading since I was in college. Uh, you know, thanks to these alternatives, we we finally had some balance in the voices in the media. But now that you know the the, the digital world that seemed open this up, and now it's being closed off again because of the dominance of these platforms. These are the ways that people get their information online now. You know, people are not going. No one's typing in. You know, Patriot news cool stuff.com slash net ampersand backslash patriot i mean no no one's doing that right you, you go you see what's in your facebook feed you see what's in your twitter feed you you google a word or two about the news of the day and whatever pops up is what you're going to read so this gives them a massive advantage and who knows how you could even calculate how valuable this was for democrat candidates in the last few elections you know we're just waking up to this now we're waking up to how pervasive the bias of Silicon Valley is, how strongly the left 
has dominated behind the scenes via algorithms and terms of service and these enforcement procedures. I mean, here's one idea. If I got suspended, let's say, from Twitter, who would I even call? What do you even do? Is there is there a phone number? Can I get someone on the phone at Twitter that will explain to me what's going on? I, not that I'm aware of. There's no, you know, 1-800-TWITTER. So I get to send into some anonymous turn, you know, some an- anonymous service uh, email account and hope that someone is going to give me a fair shake. You know, I don't even know what the answers are to these things. But I also don't know how we're supposed to continue to engage with these platforms in good faith unless they, or believing that they're engaging with us in good faith unless that they establish very clear rules of the road. And in cases like this, where it's where it's a close call, or rather where it's an important call, not a close call, um, it doesn't go against the conservative somehow. This was a, this was a real test for YouTube, and you know there there's a, a major effort underway right now to get rid of all kinds of content from YouTube. And this was the New York Times piece. YouTube is removing thousands of videos that push quote extreme views. Now, as is so often the case with the debates over censorship and the First Amendment, which you know are some of the most interesting constitutional fights that we've had in this country. Where does the First Amendment stop and start? What's protected? What's not? And it is an it is an essential freedom. I mean, yes, we need the First Amendment. I mean, we need the Second Amendment to protect the First, but we also need the First Amendment to protect the Second. And we need the First Amendment for everything else that's going on. You know, freedom of speech, the liberty to share ideas without prior restraint from the government, without punishment from government entities and bodies, except in the most clearly defined circumstances. And it's easier said than done to clearly define them. This is central to our society, and it's really one of the things that separates us from many other developed uh, countries, not just in the West, but around the world, industrialized, wealthy countries. Well, we, have a tr- we have true freedom of speech. This doesn't really exist anywhere else. But when you start to see the, the capacity for digital censorship grow in this way, meaning that you know, an algorithm can shift the public conversation about an issue, whether it's immigration or health care or which presidential candidate, they can shift behind the scenes. You don't even know what's going on. You don't know how they're doing what they're doing. It's not just like a newspaper that's presenting you information. Are you seeing this because it's the most relevant search result? Are you seeing it because your friends that you agree with want you to see this? Why are you being shown these things? Unless we have full transparency into that, we're never really going to know why we're seeing the information that we are, how it's impacting, how it's influencing our view on a whole host of issues. And the the I, I want to return to the censorship point because that's where this YouTube removing extreme videos. Uh, this is something we need to watch very, very closely because this is going to be true across the Internet on all these different platforms. And given what we've seen with Crowder, where they'll find a way to punish you if you're conservative, even if you don't break their rules, think about where that could go next and who could be next in this process. I'll have more for you on this in just a moment. YouTube, Facebook, they dwarf CNN, The New York Times in not just the money that they command in the advertising dollars and their ability to uh, elevate and suppress voices. I mean, it's not even close. There's been a massive shift in power from these old legacy platforms like like the New York Times CNN apparatus and the apparatchiks who work for them to these social media platforms. That's That has happened. It is reality now. And they're much bigger players in this space. Uh, these digital platforms are 
the future of communication. I mean, they're the present and future of communication. And that's why when you see things like this from the New York Times about them, uh, we should all be on guard and not just... And, and then you see what happens with Stephen Crowder and, and other conservatives, uh, fellow conservatives in terms of the punishments that are meted out, the suspensions, the, all of that. We, we got to be ready. This is, this is the biggest First Amendment fight in terms of free speech, not religious liberty. That's other parts of this uh, that we're going to have going forward. New York Times writes here that the companies uh, like YouTube have come under intense criticism for their delayed reaction to the spread of hateful and false content. At the same time, President Trump and others argue the giant tech platforms censor right-wing opinions and the new policies put in place by the companies have inflamed those debates. Yeah. Yeah, they have. What is what is really hateful and false content? How, how could we even gauge that? Things like, if someone says abortion is murder, is that a hateful comment? Because I think a lot of you listening would say, well, it's hateful to kill babies. So what is hateful content? Illegal immigration is bad and illegal immigrants should be punished for breaking the law. Is that hateful content? You may say, Buck, of course not. But uh, if you if you asked a room full of people that work for Google or people that work for Facebook, is that hateful? I think they would say absolutely. You had none other than Anderson Cooper himself berating someone on air because Facebook would not take down a video that was essentially a parody video of Nancy Pelosi looking like it looking like a clown. That's right, take it down, deplatform it. The mentality that you see from the left on college campuses has now found its way not just in a peripheral sense into the most powerful media platforms and in the minds of the most powerful media figures on the left. It's at the very top of the power structure. You know, you have, you know, Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg and the people that run these platforms, they feel the social pressure and they have bought in at some level to the construct that the left creates here of a need, an immediate need to suppress, uh, suppress and censor speech. This is going to have very negative consequences for us to be able to fight back going forward if they're able to just determine what's hateful, what's fake. They get to pull down what's fake now. Ooh, isn't that going to be interesting? Considering that they believe every word out of Donald Trump's mouth, Donald Trump can say that he had a bagel for breakfast and they'll say that it's fake news. We're going to let them now determine on these platforms? What is the answer? It's going to have to be government regulation, folks. It's going to have to be wartime conservatives uniting and taking action. Got a whole lot more show, team. Stay with me. This day have set upon a mighty endeavor a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. When I attended the commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the D-Day landings, some thought it might be the last such event. But the wartime generation, my generation, is resilient, and I'm delighted to be with you in Portsmouth today. A lot of pomp and circumstance around the president's visit and time with the royal family, which one would expect. And now with uh, June 6th, the uh, D-Day uh, commemoration, 
right? I know today's June fifth, so tomorrow is technically uh, the the D Day, uh, the day of D Day. But while we look at this and we find ourselves, one, I think, first, hearkening back to the courage of those who were storming those beaches in Normandy and what they did, what they put on the line. Many gave their lives for this country, many Brits, many Canadians, uh, and and some others from some other countries as well, uh, gave their lives in that effort. And we have a very special relationship with the with the Brits as a result that, that endures to this day. I mean, it's yes, it's true. We have all this cultural similarity and this uh, this connectivity between us and the Brits that stretches back for centuries, although not all not all of their the history with Great Britain is great. We had they did they did burn down our White House at one point. Right. I mean, they, there's been some bad stuff. They were impressing our sailors for a while. We had to we had to beat them in a revolution. But it's cool. We're friends now. We love the Brits. In fact, I saw a poll today. That said that Americans, 90% of Americans have a favorable view of Great Britain, which is about what I would have guessed. And then the 10%, I think, are just curmudgeonly. I don't like anybody, you know, probably, probably hate, you know, Barbados, the Bahamas, Vanuatu and other like little island paradises that how could you be mad at them? But I'm sure there's there's you can find 10% of people that don't like any issue. It doesn't matter what it is. But this should be a day when it's. Maybe a, just a little bit out of favor to trash Trump. You know, you know, we got the D-Day commemoration. He is the commander in chief. As I was telling you yesterday, I think he gets not nearly enough. Uh, he gets not nearly enough praise or support or recognition for being a commander in chief who has stayed his hand when the two previous commanders in chief really did not in many ways. And I think made some enormous strategic errors, both Obama and Bush. Trump has not made enormous strategic errors on national security, has not put large numbers of our troops in harm's way unnecessarily. Um, but the the patriotism, you know, and the water's edge, that whole that doesn't really, you know, that that uh, partisanship stops the water's edge. It's, that's not really true anymore, is it? We've got a, a president on foreign soil. He's still getting people coming after him in every way they can. And CNN had one of their correspondents. I don't know if this is just stretching for stretching for time or if this is trying to just pander to the CNN audience, which is psychotically anti-Trump, psychotically anti-Trump. Uh, but here's CNN, uh, CNN correspondent talking about how maybe Trump wants to be king himself. Play seven. Essentially, there are so few people who can seemingly inspire that level of respect, that level of deference uh, in President Trump. We, we don't often see that. But as you said, the queen, he's always taking a very deferential tone. He seems to have a huge amount of respect for the institution of the monarchy. Uh, perhaps he uh, likes the idea of, of, of being a king. I would say that's a Freudian slip, but... I, you know, it's just they can't help themselves. She's a correspondent. She's not a pundit. She's supposed to just be reporting on the president's visit and that he has, you know, the, these are the are the loops that exist in the minds. There, there's a kind of playback loop that exists in the minds of many liberals on these issues. And one of the loops is that Trump, it, Trump likes authoritarians, supports authoritarians, wants to work with authoritarians. You know, that's. Yeah, that's one of the loops. And so when when he's meeting with, you know, maybe, maybe Canada is a closer ally. I don't know. I don't want to get 
in between our Canadian and, and British brothers and sisters on this one. I don't know who's technically a close rally in the United States. You could make the case either way. It's probably Canada, but we love the Brits too. You know, we can't we can't pick among our children. We love them all equally. But you'd think that here he is showing, you know, they always say he's not presidential. They always say he doesn't give all the due respect and he says things that he shouldn't say. And now he's being respectful, not of Putin or Kim Jong-un. We know they want to jump on that and say all kinds of things about how, oh, look at what this tells us. And he loves dictators and all this other stuff. We know that, right? But he's being respectful of the royal family in one of our closest allied countries. And it's indicative in some way, according to the CNN reporter, maybe he wants to be king of Trump's monarchical uh, tendencies, of of Trump's desire to be an autocrat himself, even though the king in the if there was a king in Great Britain, it would not be a person of any power or authority. So why would you want to do that? And I'd be willing to bet that Trump has I don't know what the real funding is for the royal family in, in Britain right now. Um, but my my sense is that Trump has a whole lot more money and certainly a lot more freedom in what he can do than uh, than Great Britain does. You know, also they they did a little bit of a cleanup on the the Meghan Markle issue. I mean, Trump addressed that again. It, it was fake news. What what they did that was being spread around in a way that was meant to just poison the well of media coverage before the president's arrival. He didn't he didn't go after Meghan Markle unnecessarily. He just said he didn't realize she had said something mean. And then he said something nice about her. So that was fake news. You know, they they want to skip past that. But that was indeed fake news. Uh, Speaking of fake news. Well, I guess it's plagiarism isn't really fake news. It's fake thinking. it's, It's falsifying your own ability and thinking so that people believe, you know, more than you do. Biden's got himself in some trouble. It has to do with the Green New Deal and the environment. We always hear the Trump administration is so is so terrible. From liberals say this is so terrible in the environment. Trump disagrees with that. Play fifteen. You know we have the cleanest air in the world in the United States, and it's gotten better since I'm president. We have the cleanest water; it's crystal clean. And I always say I want crystal clean water and air. So I haven't heard his comments, but we do have. We're setting records environmentally. I think that in part he just says this because he knows that it drives liberals insane. One of the areas there's there's a the, the liberal mind really does believe that Republicans they've been so brainwashed on this issue they think that Republicans don't care about lead in the water, real pollutants, not CO two, which is what you and I breathe out. I'm filling the room around me right now with CO two. So are you. It's not a pollutant. Uh, they, but they have come to believe that they are the planet's only hope that the left, the Green New Deal advocates, they're the only hope for saving the world. And that's not an exaggeration. That is that is how they view this, that they're going to save the world by continuing to push with policies that they can't, they, they will never implement themselves, will never get through Congress, would be astronomically expensive but it's really more about the psychological posture of liberals with this issue than anything else. They believe much more strongly in their own greatness as indicated by their belief in the Green New Deal than anything that has to do with really saving the world. Uh, but Trump pointing out that 
there is a lot of good stuff going on with the environment that we're constantly, the EPA has not been destroyed. All regulation of the environment is not, you know, has not gone by the wayside. Uh, this drives them insane. This is a great way of trolling them because they, true believers on the left, insist. And, and, I, and I've come across them. They really do think that you and I, those of us who are conservative, have no interest or, uh, or care whatsoever for the environment, for, the, for conservation, and for the world around us. What do they base this on? It's not clear. Climate change skepticism, or rather skepticism of the catastrophic implications of climate change, even though we can point to the same projections about climate change stretching back for decades being wrong, we're still supposed to believe that the people who were wrong are going to be right the next time. But Biden is trying to make some headway with the left on the Green New Deal, on climate change. And he ran into a little trouble, though, because he borrowed from some other some other places in, in his uh, announcement for his own plan. So we will get into that. We'll also talk about Bernie Sanders and socialism. It's going to be fun. Stick around. It's shameful. The way, the way we treated Puerto Rico and the islands. I'm not even sure people in the president's administration knew Puerto Ricans are all citizens. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not joking. And so there was this notion that somehow, why should we have to make and invest that kind of money in dealing with what is a genuine ex- existential crisis? An existential crisis, he says, after taking a shot at, at Puerto Rico, uh, let me tell you that that's, that's Joe Biden who's got his own he's got his own problems this week. Uh, the The Trump administration has sent billions and billions of, of dollars in disaster relief uh, to to Puerto Rico, and while Biden is going to sit there and tell us all that this is that, that you know he's making fun of them, that making fun of Trump, that his people in the administration don't know that Puerto Ricans are citizens. Uh, I would just note that I spoke to the governor of Puerto Rico about this issue. And I said, are you getting sufficient? This, this, I interviewed him. And I said, are you getting sufficient funds? Are, is the government response, the federal government response strong? And he said, yes. Now, there are some issues that should be addressed. One is the Jones Act, which is an outdated and, and really, kind of, really somewhat bizarre uh, statute that says that you know if a ship leaves, it, 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 I, I mean I can't even remember the specifics of it now, but it has to. You can't just send a ship from the U.S. to Puerto Rico. It has to come from some or a foreign ship has to go to a U.S. port for, first before it goes to Puerto Rico. I forget the, but it just means that the price of goods is much higher. It also uh, was an issue for the the relief efforts initially, but you can tell that that Biden is not going to be a stickler for accuracy because why should he be? They're going to they're going to prop him up and say he's great no matter what. They're going to do what they always do, which is skip over any inconsistency, any inaccuracy that Biden puts forward. And as long as it's negative for Trump, they will find a way. Uh, They'll find a way to make it sound like Biden's more or less on more or less on track. But he does have a little problem here that uh, that came up. And this is actually from CNN where Biden, once again, has a plagiarism issue. This is the Democrats' number one candidate. This guy, a month ago, had a sniffing, kissing tops of heads, being super inappropriate and weird issue, which you'll note, Democrats, even in the Me Too era, not a problem for them. They think he's the most electable, so they'll just they'll just skip past all that. But 
CNN's John King, he was displeased with Biden for this uh, this problem that should not have been. Play 16. Uh, this is a pretty amateur mistake for the frontrunners campaign to make on a substantial policy rollout when they had to know, when Team Biden got together planning to announce his campaign, the one thing they cannot do is plagiarize. It's lazy or it's arrogant, and let me flip the thing. You would think he would be happy to quote progressive groups on his website yeah, as they are they're attacking him. He should a great embrace. This is, a, I'll call this a style issue, although this is a leadership issue. This is a competence issue. He wants to be president of the United States. This is a leadership and competence issue. You can't do this stuff. You just can't. You do it in our business, you get fired. Donald Trump tweeted out plagiarism charge against sleepy Joe Biden on his ridiculous climate change plan is a big problem, but the corrupt media will save him. That's true. His other problem is that he is drawing flies, not people to his rallies. Nobody is showing up. I mean, nobody. You can't win without people. Um, this is this comes from uh, Republican National. The RNC uh, has been going after Biden on this, too. Uh, the RNC's Steve Guest tweeted, During his 1988 campaign, Biden plagiarized campaign speeches from British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock, as well as Robert Kennedy. During law school, Biden plagiarized too. Uh, Biden likes likes to plagiarize. This is an issue. I, I would just point out that there was, uh, there was a, a uh, member of the incoming administration for the Trump campaign who the left-wing media, was actually CNN, went after her for a 20-year-old plagiarism issue and caused huge problems for her un- unfairly. And this was used to to sink an, an incoming administration official. This is not going to sink Biden, though, because they're going to just skip past it. They're going to say... Uh, they're going to say that this was it's fine. You know, they'll, they'll allow it. The groups that he plagiarized from will say, no, no, even without without giving us official permission, we will give retroactive permission to Joe Biden to to steal our stuff. Um, Biden has said some other really interesting stuff, by the way. I mean, he's going really hard here on on climate because he's trying to find a way to look relevant and authentic to the left wing base because he needs he's going to need the base to support him if he's going to beat all these other candidates it won't be enough just for the the establishment of dc the swamp the media to be with him he's going to need grassroots activists on the left to give him at least some some support in this process uh but you know the daily caller news foundation has looked at a few parts of this report that are problematic. Then remember, this is Biden's climate change call to arms. Not quite as crazy as Elizabeth Warren, who says that it might be a greater challenge than World War II, but you know, is is saying that this is something that we we have to deal with. Aviation, according to the Biden platform that was released on this, uh, accounts for nearly two percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, and that portion is expected to increase. Unfortunately, today, few low carbon technologies or fuels have been developed to tackle this challenge um the liberal website vox in january used language that is similar to this right i mean these are the different the different areas where he just sort of took this i'm sure it's a staffer i'm sure it's a staffer who pulled this stuff together uh, what's more interesting to me than anything else is just the way that biden is going to skate he's going to skate on this because he's going to skate on everything it's going to be hillary all over again they think that he is the electable one and so he's the one that they will do everything they can to knock all barriers down in favor of. They're going to do whatever they have to to try to help this guy. And they're going to need to do a lot. 
He's just not a, he's not a formidable candidate against Donald Trump. He's not. I still believe that Bernie Sanders, as as crazy as this is, we're going to talk about crazy Bernie and the Soviet Union in a minute. I still think that Bernie Sanders is a bigger problem than Joe Biden if he gets the nomination. Obviously, Soviet Union was an authoritarian society with no democratic rights. And I think if you know history, you'll know that democratic socialists stood up and fought against that. You can look about what existed in the Soviet Union or in Venezuela. That is not what I'm talking about at all. Wait a second. Why is Bernie Sanders? So Bernie Sanders there is talking about how the Soviet Union is not a good example of socialism. You can't look at that. Let's not forget that Bernie wasn't some big critic of Soviet socialism. He went there on his honeymoon. Bernie went to the Soviet Union on his honeymoon. A bizarre choice. If nothing else, just think about the food. I mean, how much borscht can one man have on his honeymoon before he wants something else? And he was there back in, what was it, the 80s? So I, I can't imagine what that was really like. But he And he came back, and with his wife, I've played the audio for you before on the show, he was defending what he saw there. In fact, he was glorifying some of what he saw there. He's kind of a modern-day... You know, Walter Durante, remember the guy from, what was it, the New York Times or Chicago Tribune? I think it was the New York Times, who went over there and didn't want to talk about or didn't want to report on the famine in Ukraine, which was a forced famine. It it was an intentional government policy. These people would have no food. They would starve. Uh, So I I believe it's called the Holodomor by the Ukrainians, but I might have that wrong. Uh, There's a Ukrainian Holocaust through through the famine that the Soviet Union pushed on them, uh, pushed on Ukraine. Uh, But Bernie is somebody who came back saying nice things about the Soviet Union as an adult and as an adult who chose to travel there. Uh, So that may bring us to, well, one, he's not honest about his past with with socialism, which is not surprising at all. But then there's also how is it that socialism is still gaining in popularity in this country at a time when you would think, given the Internet access we have, what's happening in, in Venezuela Oh, and they all pretend like Venezuela is not a place that any of them would have ever said anything nice about. That's not true. Venezuela is a country that as recently as 2012, you could find supportive editorials in the New York Times, the Washington Post, about what Chavez was trying to accomplish in that country. They didn't have results really to point to, but they're saying, you know, he's he's on the right track, trying the right things, doing what he can here. He, he's doing his best to make sure that there's going to be, um, you know, there's going to be a more equitable society in Venezuela. But one of the reasons that I think it, it's becoming uh, more popular is that you're one, the, the media is largely supportive of this. Just as during the Soviet Union's era, there were a lot of people in academia, academia and the media in this country who like the idea of the Soviet I'm not talking about fellow travelers and actual communist penetrations, which we did have here and is still a part of our history that is completely whitewashed by the left. If you have not read Whitaker Chambers Witness, please, please read that book. Um, there are many others that I would you know, blacklisted by history is great. There's, there's a lot of that's about McCarthy. There's the the Venona project. There's books about Venona that you should read. It's all about the penetrations the Soviet Union had of this country. Um, the the KGB archives uh, that were released as the Matrokin archives. 
you know, The Sword and the Shield about the KGB. Highly recommend that book. It'll tell you, one, the extent of the operations against us at the hands of the Soviet Union, but it'll also tell you about how the KGB and the Communist Party were much closer to, at some point, going to maybe open war with us than a lot of people realize. Uh, they, they were really thinking about it. They were they thought we were going to have a first strike on them, so they were really considering a first strike on us. There's some scary stuff in those archives. But why, why would anybody not understand the lessons that have been learned here? I mean, how, how is it really possible that in this at this stage of the game, there would be such a, a lack of understanding of the truth of socialism? Well, you know, the Daily, the Daily Show, which is a straight-up propaganda show with jokes, so sometimes there's funny stuff, but it's, it's political propaganda in joke form, I did this man-on-the-street kid asking people about socialism, and, I mean, here's what they said. Play clip 11. Uh, I think socialism is great. I think you should definitely help whoever you could at any situation. I f*** with socialism just because I f*** with anything that's helping black people out. Okay, so you're socialism curious. Yeah, well, I'm in college. Right. Do you hate billionaires? Low-key, yeah. You look at Jeff Bezos, he doesn't look human. I mean, I think the idea of socialism is... On point. I mean, I don't really know what socialism means. <laughs> now, I know you say, Buck, this isn't a, a scientific poll. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of college kids. What do they really know? Well, the, all the polling that we see right now, I mean, if you want to talk about scientific polls, shows that there is a pretty dramatic increase in support for socialism overall, that, that people do believe in socialism. They do believe that it's something that we should consider more as a country. And it's getting close to... I think 50% support among millennials. I'd have to check the most recent polling. But part of it is that they don't know what it is. They don't really understand that that what you have, for example, in... And I used to joke around that Bernie Sanders is running for the mayor of Stockholm. That's not really fair to Stockholm. Stockholm is... Sweden, obviously Stockholm is the major city there, uh, is, is a country that has a pretty free market economy. It just has very high tax rates and a very large social welfare state. But it's not a socialist country. It's not not meaningfully socialist in, in many ways. It does not have government control of the means of production. There are not it's not all state industries. It used to be along it used to be back in the seventies. But the the uh, the designation of these as socialist countries is is not accurate. Uh, Venezuela is much closer to a socialist country. And we're really looking at this. Venezuela where the government was controlling prices. And as I've said to you, the price control mechanism was one of the reasons that Venezuela failed so rapidly and so miserably, because sure as night follows day, you control prices on based on a social justice platform of, oh, these guys are the greedy capitalists are taking too much money from you with their price. Now the price is lower. Well, then guess what? The price is the price because that's what the market price was. So then you create a black market for things and then people stop making things for the open market. And then the open market starts to collapse because people can't buy the things that they're trying to that they want to buy and the producers can't make them because the prices are wrong and then the government would step in in venezuela and say well now we control the factory because you're not making uh you know widgets cheaply enough for the venezuelan people we're going to take over your widget factory and we're going to be the ones running it and telling people oh do you think that works out well and so on and so forth and that's how you have the country with the largest proven oil reserves in the world in a state of complete economic and financial despair 
Though I'll note that Maduro's still hanging on. I've been worried all along that this guy was going to find some way to, to cling to power, and that's exactly where we are. He he is, in fact, clinging to power. But kids should at least know that the programs that we're talking about in this country, the, 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 the things that are under discussion, what is socialism and what's not, they should be able to distinguish that. And, you know, Medicare for all is not in and of itself socialism. It is closer and closer, though, to socialized medicine. It'll put us on a path to socialized medicine. I mean, they need to know that. But if all it is is helping people, doing nice things for poor people, spreading money around for rich people, which is what the common conception among millennials and Gen Z currently is, uh, then socialism is going to keep being popular, basically because they don't know what it is. The relevance of this dossier is that it was used in one FISA application for Carter Page. Carter Page is one individual in this entire Russia investigation. So I just want to point out that this is like one thread. The question is, which piece of the dossier did they rely on? I can tell you that they didn't staple the dossier to a cover letter and and hand it to the court. And was it corroborated? And I think we don't know the answers to that questions to those questions yet, um, because most of it has been redacted. And the IG report should shed more light on on those. So that's one of the premier defenders of the upper echelon management of the FBI that engaged in the deep state coup against attempted deep state coup against the president. You know, that's one of the uh, the the foremost bad experts and analysts over at CNN, Asha Rangappa, who was at FBI for uh, you know a long time. And she's been a mainstay. It's been her, this guy, Mudd, who's just completely lost his mind. I actually have met him a couple of times and he seemed normal. But Trump has broken him like he's broken many other people. There's Rangapa, there's pajama, the FBI Pajama Boy. I don't remember his name, but you know who I'm talking about. The one that looks like Pajama Boy. And he comes on. He's like James Comey's number one number one fan. And, and what they do now is they, they keep on either just getting things entirely wrong, which Rangapa did here. The, the uh, dossier was not used in one FISA application. It was used in, from what we've already seen, from what's been released, it has been used in all of the FISA applications. It was cited again and again for the extensions. So if they had more information, if there was more stuff, you would think that they wouldn't have to rely on what we now know. And this is not some spin. This is not some effort to describe it in a way that is inaccurate. It was opposition research paid for by the DNC, relying on foreign on a, on a foreign intelligence, former foreign intelligence operative, Christopher Steele, who relied on foreign sources of information. I've still never gotten an answer to the question, why is it that the meeting that Veselnitskaya at Trump Tower had with Donald Trump Jr. and Manafort and, and Jared Cohen, why was that meeting evidence of some kind of treason? It's horrible. It's terrible. He should have, never should have taken that meeting. And be, because it would have been information from a foreigner. That's all it is. Information from a foreigner about Hillary Clinton. And the Clinton DNC paid a foreigner to get information from other foreigners and that's okay no one has ever explained that to me you know they, they say oh well christopher Steele, he's highly respected really we're i know now we're gonna get Steele testifying that's the latest he's gonna testify i gotta see if it's behind what the what the specifics of the the, the parameters of the testimony are going to be but christopher Steele is going to be testifying and we have to find out okay well who told him what and when 
We have to get him under oath. I wonder if, if he is found to lie about any of this stuff. Do you think that they will they will prosecute him? Do you think that there's really any realistic possibility that they will hold him accountable if, if he engages in any kind of falsehood up there? No, of course not. Just like how uh, Tony Podesta, John Podesta's brother, for his foreign engagements and working for foreign governments, is going to find himself uh, in no trouble whatsoever. You know, he's not going to get in trouble for what he did because we have a two-tier justice system. But, but back to this uh, Miss Rangappa, who has uh, once or twice crossed swords with me on, on Twitter in the past. So I, we've, I've never met her, uh, but she is, she's, in, in a sense, remarkable because in a, in a crowded field of clownery, Ms. Rangappa at CNN as their national security analyst is among the most consistently and spectacularly wrong analysts that, that have been on this issue, period. Uh, she has managed to be completely off base time and again, but CNN never holds anyone to account for this because the purpose of their analysts, and this is very important, the purpose of the CNN national security analysts are going on TV is not to tell you things that are true, is not to tell you things that are accurate. It is to promote a narrative that is pleasing to CNN's audience, despite the fact that now they've had a, I think, an 18% drop in their ratings. Um, they they have a, a narrative that they're trying to push. This is, I believe, very personal for CNN top management. I think that Zucker views his role now as engaging in a kind of massive feud with Trump. And it's Trump versus Zucker at some level. And this has been personalized in a way that if I were still an employee of CNN, which I am certainly not, uh, I would find wholly inappropriate and, and bothersome. Uh, but being wrong is never an issue at CNN. You see, that's what I'm really getting at here. I mean, what Rangapa said is just factually incorrect. Do you think they're going to issue a correction? Maybe they'll put it in like the website and no one's going to see it and no one's going to care. But it doesn't matter, though. And the other part of this that I find so interesting is that you have these former national security people, people from my old community in one way or another, like, like Rangapa, uh, CNN Pajama Boy, and uh, Phil Mudd, who I, I know people that like Phil and say he's a good guy, so I don't know what's... And I'm probably being much more charitable about him than he would be about me, which is fine. But I don't know what's happened to him. But in the Trump era... You know, he's the one that was yelling about the blank hole countries. And, you know, he's from a blank hole country. I think he's Irish. So, you know, uh, it's not a very nice thing to say about Ireland. Uh, but, you know, you, you look at this and you see that there's there's a a fallback position for a lot of these individuals that, well, the FISA court had a process with judges signing off on stuff. So it's OK. This is never the position of the left on any other matter of national security interest. This is never the position of the left that. Because there's a uh, there there are some internal checks and balances, no external watchdogs. A secret government process to spy on people is just fine and just fine and dandy. Oh, but there was somebody signing off on it, really. So was the left okay with? Oh, there's somebody signing off on drone strikes. So then the drone strikes must just be fine. Well, they were fine when Obama was doing them, but before that, that was, of course, that was not fine. And they, they change their mind on these things based very much on who the individual uh, who the individual is who's making the calls. And that's what you have with all these institutionalists on the on the payroll at CNN. They're defending 
the process because the process was used at the FBI and the DOJ to get at Trump. The Inspector General report, as I keep saying, it is going to come out. There are going to be people who look very, very bad and look stupid. I don't know if there's going to be any accountability in government. I'm not sure there will be. I don't want to overpromise to you and tell you that I, I really believe at this point that those at the FBI who stepped out of line, who abused their authority, who abused their power, will be held to account because I'm, I'm not sure that that is true. In fact, I, I doubt very much that that is true. And I can also tell you that the people that have been getting paid to run around and be mouthpieces for the Russia collusion delusion for a long time here, those people will also not be punished by the media apparatus because they weren't being paid to go on TV and be smart and be right. They were paid to give a kind of believability, to create a a veneer of respectability of what was a conspiracy theory. And as you know, the conspiracy theory was that President Donald Trump worked with the Russians to undermine uh, our election, steal the election from Hillary Clinton. It's crazy, and it needs to keep being said out loud because it's so crazy. Rangapa and others over there, they're part of the, well, it didn't matter that we were wrong because now let's move to, oh, now let's move to obstruction. The process was weaponized against Trump to create the conspiracy theory of Russia collusion And now the process of the process, meaning the investigation of the conspiracy theory, that's being weaponized against Trump. It's it's never enough. It never will be enough because it also was never really about the truth. And once that's established and once we understand that, then everything else really makes sense and and falls into place. By the way, I saw some story here about Los Angeles where, you know, I spent some time recently. I, I like I like L.A. to visit. I don't know. I don't know if I could live there or not just because the traffic. I'm not a, I'm not a car guy. I like I like to be driven. I'm a very the ride share thing has made L.A. much better for me. I like Ubering, and I, I, that's right. I believe that you should get Uber riders to get ratings too, not just drivers. And I know many of you would disagree with me on that. But L.A. has gotten some more some more bad news about city mismanagement, and the homelessness problem. I want I want to just touch on that a little bit, and then we'll get into your favorite time in mind. Roll call. That's coming up. I was just out in China, as many of you know, for a week, and when I when I came back, I spent the week in, in Los Angeles, and I have to say that the new headline here for the day about how the number of homeless people has jumped 12% across L.A. County, and that you have nearly 60,000 homeless uh, living on the streets, uh, this is, is tragic, uh, but it's unsurprising. And California, you know, it it takes a long time for a place to degrade. You know, Rome wasn't built overnight, but it also didn't collapse overnight. It took a long series of events over a a considerable period of time for everything to finally just fall apart. And, you know, you start to think, how quickly would some of these blue states really just collapse? If If they didn't have the federal government backing a lot of their programs and giving them all this stuff. I mean, how quickly would the actual governing decisions of some of these blue states turn into a Detroit-like situation, or blue cities, I should say, although states, too, at some level. Uh, But, you know, California is a place that, given its natural resources, its tremendous beauty. I mean, you know, you drive along Pacific Coast Highway, you go check out Malibu, Big Sur. These are some of the most beautiful places in the United States. Some people would argue some of the more beautiful places in the world. 
And the fact that California has the problems that it does here uh, really just go to the political uh, monoculture that exists now. There are, I think someone told me there are a million a million Republicans, a million registered Republicans in the Los Angeles County, either in the county or in Los Angeles County and the surrounding areas. Um, but there are Republicans there, but they're just completely outvoted. I think it's three to one. And you have all these policies that are, are being pushed that are just, they don't make sense. These are not intelligent things to do. And this keeps happening in these cities that are very, very blue. There's tremendous mismanagement. Uh, this is happening in Los Angeles, where the homelessness population is is, is exploding. Um, and this is happening in San Francisco, where you now have the poop patrol for people trying to find human feces via apps on the street so they can avoid those areas. Uh, I'm here in Baltimore, which has certainly had its fair share of problems from mismanagement, continues to be plagued by crime. Really one of the only... Uh, one of the only uh, exceptions to this, which is a very large blue city. I mean, Chicago had its most violent weekend of the year this past weekend. I think 50 people were shot, something along those lines. But really, the the only exception to this uh, is New York City, where, where I'm originally from. And I, I just believe that New York under... You know, Giuliani cleaned it up so that crime wasn't going to be a problem. And then you did have... A, a, a very lucky period of tremendous, not just uh, investment in the, in the financial sector and all the employment there, but, but global investment in New York City. Because New York is a, a truly global city, you've had people from Russia, China, Brazil, you know, India, very, very wealthy foreign nationals buying incredibly expensive properties, which has helped prop up the real estate market more than it would have otherwise been. So New York is a bit of an anomaly, but all these other places... San Francisco, Los Angeles, Baltimore, Chicago, New Orleans, just poorly run, man. I mean, just not run well at all. And you see the the decisions that are being made. And you can tell on, on the left coast, the west coast, people think that it's mean to stop homelessness. They think it's it's you're being unkind if you try to prevent people from living on the streets and being in squalor, even if you want to prevent the outbreak of diseases like typhus, you know, the things that have been eradicated in the general population for a long time. But if you are living in unsanitary conditions, you can get. So I feel badly for a place like L.A. because there's a lot of great people live there. A lot of great Los Angelinos listen to this show. Um, But I also feel like the country does get to learn something from far left management of these cities is incredibly damaging. Roll calls up next. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Let's get to it. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And uh, let's get to Kyle, who writes, Buck, heard you on Kennedy talking about China. It bothers me that people in this country loosely throw around the term fascist at whomever they disagree with politically. But if you look at the definition of what fascism actually is, I think the 21st century reincarnation is China. 
I know they call themselves communists, but I think they're a mix of nationalism, state-run quasi-capitalist enterprises, and the Orwellian police state is more fascist than communist in its features. I'm not sure there can be a deal with a devil like that unless we sacrifice our principles and security, but I hope I'm wrong. Churchill warned about Hitler in the early 30s, but no one took him seriously until the threat was too large to defuse without all-out war. We need leaders who understand the threat and take it seriously because the target is on our backs and the Chinese are practicing their aim. Well, you know, I, I, I've been reading more and more of these geo-strategists, people that have been longtime China watchers, and they seem pretty united in the idea that China is really looking to defeat us or get ahead of us, at least economically, before we're going to see anything militarily from them. And I see your point about how they're not, they're definitely not really truly communist because the central uh, tenet of a, of a communist system is economics, right? I mean, that's, you know, Marxism is, it's a political and economic system intertwined together. Or it's really politics directing the entirety of the economy for the purposes of redistribution. But whether it's, uh, you know, fascist or quasi-capitalist or some new thing we've never seen, I, I think you could probably argue that China is in many ways its, its, own, its own political entity and it is unlike anything else that we have ever seen in the past. There is a central committee, there is a Chinese Communist Party, and the central committee does control things. Xi Jinping, though, from what I understand, controls the central committee. So it's a communist dictatorship, it's an individual dictatorship, it's a one-party one uh, capitalist statist enterprise. There's a lot of ways you could describe China, but all of them are going to be problematic for us going forward. Adam writes, Buck, you should do an ad campaign that coincides with the election. Have a parody of Comrade Kami Bear run for president. Do all the tropes from the USSR and help Trump win. Shields high. Well, Adam, I think especially there's a part of me that's hoping that Bernie Sanders is going to get the nomination just so then we can bring back Kami Bear, which would be a whole lot of fun and uh, would be a really good way for us to be able to do some fun commentary and do some good things. So we'll see. We'll see what we got. Stan writes, in Paraguay, a teacher broke a piece of chalk while writing on the chalkboard. Trump was blamed because of the white chalk. He was also cited for racism. Stan, if you're a comedian, do not quit your day job, my friend. But I do appreciate you writing in nonetheless. Brandon writes, Buck, great show yesterday. The opening scene in Saving Private Ryan is the main reason I joined the Army. I was in tears watching it at the age of 20. I always loved my country, but didn't see the need to serve her. I thought to myself, what makes me so special that I get to enjoy this freedom and liberty without any sacrifice of my own? Shortly after watching the movie, I went to an Army recruiter in my small community college in Saginaw, Michigan. I told the recruiter I wanted to do what Ryan did in the movie. By the grace of God, it all worked out, and I became an airborne infantryman with all the with the ACO-1505 in the 82nd Airborne Division. Today's a very special day for my old unit, one day before D-Day. H-, minus. it's written on our crest, our unit crest to remember the men that jumped into France one hour before June 6th, uh, 1944. So on June 5th, around 2300, that's when it happened. Thanks for what you do, brother. Airborne all the way. Um, I think I might have said yesterday the anniversary of D-Day. I might have. Uh, I, I know it's June sixth. I just got confused as to what what day we're to, what what date we were on. So apologies for that. 
But obviously, D-Day is June 6th, which is coming up in a day. Day before. Today would be the day that you're getting loaded onto boats and getting ready to get on the planes for the airdrop and all the rest of it. And we talked about it some in some detail yesterday. Michael writes, but a couple things. Glad you're leaving Rising. The show will leave, uh, lose half its audience when you leave. Their website video playback was horrendous. In terms of Uber ratings, I'm with you. It's a free market solution to a problem like all unregulated services in the free market. They only get better with time. On Baby Trump, I think it's kind of cute. It would be the ultimate troll if his supporters added a MAGA hat to it and started bringing little Trump baby balloons to the campaign rallies. Someone in the audience needs to get on that. Look, if they're not already selling fat baby Trump merchandise, then they're missing out on a big merchandising opportunity. You know, if they're not already doing that, I I would. How many of you would buy a little baby Trump blow up for the pool? You know, you know, people do those things where, you know, like a big swan or uh, I don't know, whatever it is you blow up, you throw it in the water and then you can you can. uh, It's not what is it called? A a float, I guess that would make sense because you're floating on it. Uh, but baby Trump merchandise, fat baby Trump merchandise is definitely something that there's an opportunity in. So if they have not already trademarked it, just putting it out there, you can send me my uh, send me a 10 percent cut for the, for the person that actually gets it and starts making it. Send me my 10 percent cut and we'll consider it even. Uh, let's see here. John writes, where are you located? So far back in the woods, I get TV a day late. Uh, well, John, I do the show out of Washington, D.C., but as I said, I'm in Baltimore tonight because sometimes I got to make moves. I got meetings I got to do. And uh, that's, yeah, I do the show in the swamp, live from the swamp. Jeff writes, hey, Buck, love your show. Listen nightly. By the way, what artist and song is your bumper music between segments? Sounds great. I'd like to know so I can download it. Thanks and have a great day. Well, Jeff, appreciate you writing in. The bumper music between segments, it comes from a music library, uh, which we have a commercial license for. So I don't even know that there's a band associated with it. I think it's just the overall library that we have rights to. I I couldn't tell you, but I did pick out some of the music. So the more upbeat stuff tends to come from uh, tends to come from me. We are thinking about doing a kind of revamp of the music on the show in general. We're thinking about doing some changes to the uh, they call it imaging which i always think is interesting because it's audio it's not image but the radio imaging may be changing pretty soon uh marissa writes heard roll call thank you yes send the freedom hut address and i'll get them sent to you in the mail the beard oils all right marissa I, i haven't forgotten we'll get that to you although my beard is as some of you noticed very trimmed down from what it used to be it's much less of a much less of an eric the Eric the Red Viking beard, and now more of a like, hey, I'm a hipster who makes coffee kind of a beard. Uh, I don't know if hipsters talk that way. I don't know what really happened there. Sarah. Hey, Buck. Really galls me that Virginia Governor Northam cannot wait to kill babies, but wants to keep others safe from harm by guns. Same old communist socialist agenda. Shields high. Well, Sarah, I don't know if I have much to add to that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, dude, this is for Matt. Dude, what is the deal? I haven't had to care about the British Royal Navy, uh, British Royal Family, not Navy, sorry, British Royal Family since July 4th, 1776. I never understand seeing their pictures all over the tabloids and the checkout line 
I like I like Trump would have been completely lost if I were asked about the Duchess of Sussex. Who? Who? What? What? Who? Matt, I I also I, I share your your confusion here because why anyone cares at all about the uh, the British royal family is something that I have no no real. Well, I, I'll say this: people like fairy tales and and royal families figure heavily in that, and I, I think for I noticed that they're more popular among young women, like Meghan Markle and the Prince Harry and all these guys. Uh, they're viewed as a kind of ultimate, like a classy, uh, what do you call it, classy reality star. That's what the British royal family is for a lot of people. They're like classy reality stars. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't speak to it really beyond that. Pablo. Hey, Buck, you asked for good shows to watch, and I just saw this week in a mini-series about the Central Park Five. I thought it was done really well in telling the story of this tragedy. Then they couldn't help themselves and actually took a jab in the summary part of the show. Huh? Shields High. Um, I don't know what you mean by took a jab in the summary part of the show. Uh, I would just say this. You know, Ann Coulter has done a lot of really interesting work on the Central Park Five. And uh, has pointed out that the people that were initially convicted, they confessed. Uh, and the, the way that they were all exonerated was essentially that their DNA was not the DNA found on the woman who was brutally uh, raped and, and attacked and almost beaten to death in the park. But that was always, as I understand it, that was always known. It was always believed that there was a a primary attacker who got away. But that did not mean that no one else took part in the attack. And for that kind of a sexual assault, if anyone takes any part in the attack, they are equally guilty as the uh, the perpetrator who would have left behind his genetic material. So I, I'm willing to bet that if I watch this and then read back over the court transcripts of it, and maybe I'll have to do that, I will find that this is likely a, a work of uh, some propaganda. But we shall see. Um, we shall see. What else do we have here? Uh, hmm... We have Chris, right? Buck, heard you talking about Stephen King. I grew up in the 80s, and he was one of the defining cultural authors. I read every book up until he got hit by a van in the 90s, I think. His writing veered off into something after that. I still read a number of his books, but he never really recovered from the accident. I married my midlife crisis. He wallowed in that life-threatening accident. Who am I to judge? Huh. What has always jarred me is that all of his main characters are unmistakably conservative and sane. In other words, the heroes of his stories are recognizable as normal. He doesn't understand the good guys he writes about are conservative. Talk about cognitive dissonance. Well, Chris, thanks so much for writing in about Stephen King. I have never read a Stephen King book, so I can't really speak to it. But thank you very much for uh, giving me your thoughts on the matter. All right, team, that's going to be it for today in the hut from Baltimore. Again, a shout out to all the folks listening on WCBM. I hope you are enjoying it. And, uh... We will be back tomorrow from the Swamp, from D.C., same time, same place. Well, I guess different place for me, but same place for you, hopefully. Shields high.